But we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 16, verses 5 through 33. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, 
for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The grass weathers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So have you ever recommended a TV, uh, a TV series or, or, a, uh, or a movie with this, with this one caveat? That you've got to watch it all the way through. Right? We give that caveat because even our favorite movies, our, our favorite TV shows, well, we know they can get off to kind of a, a slow start. Or maybe things bog down in the middle and get a little heavy, a little dark, a little depressing. And we know that people might just cut bait then rather than persevere to the end. Well, I think something similar is going on in our passage this morning. You remember last week we heard Jesus speak rather bluntly to his disciples, right? He didn't mince his words. He didn't try and soften the blow. He came right out and told them very plainly the world would hate them on account of him. So imagine hearing all that about this hatred, this coming persecution, and then being reminded that Jesus isn't sticking around, that he's about to leave. And so at this point, the disciples are probably wanting to rewrite this script because in their minds, the way it looks, there's no way that this is going to turn out well. And all the optimism, all the confidence has just been drained out of them and all that is left is this sorrow. Right? The point of verse six is that after hearing what Jesus has just said, sorrow has literally taken up every room in their hearts. But here's Jesus' caveat. Better things are around the corner. In other words, he's telling the disciples that they've got to stay tuned. They can't back out. They can't flip the channel because there's, there's far more to this story. So here's what I want us to see in the passage. Jesus lays out Three things that are going to happen that will ultimately transform the disciples' sorrow into joy. Those three things, empowerment will come, access will be given, and victory will be shared. So look again at verse 7. Jesus says to them, it's, it's actually to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. It reminds me of those OnStar commercials, right? Stay calm. Help is on the way. All right, it's understandable that the disciples don't want Jesus to go. Right? They, they, they fear that they won't be able to hold up against the very things that Jesus has just warned them about. And they're right. Because on their own, they won't be a match for what's ahead of them. So here's Jesus' promise. He's going to send the greatest reinforcement possible, the Holy Spirit, the helper. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus tells them he's going to do two primary things. He's going to convict the world, and he's going to guide the disciples. And so we're told about this work of conviction in, in verses 8 through 11. And the basic idea is 
One scholar puts it as that the Holy Spirit is coming to confront the world with its failure and prove its guilt. Right? The Spirit is going to bring sin into the light. He's going to expose the, the shallowness of the world's version of righteousness. He's going to reveal how the cross actually proves the world wrong about its judgments. Notice, though, nowhere in here is the promise that the Holy Spirit will prevent the world from doing what it wants. See, conviction is something altogether different. The promise here is even though the world will oppose the followers of Christ, the world will never, the world is never going to experience joy or contentment or peace in doing so. It's helpful if we think about sin on a, on a personal level. One of, the things, one of the things that we know is that our sins can give us some level of pleasure. But they will never secure anything more than that. And even more, we know, we all know that the pleasures of sin, they're fleeting. And what are you constantly doing in our, with our sin? We're trying to keep it in the dark. We're trying to hide it. We're trying to cover it up. You see, the world may go about doing what it desires, but the Holy Spirit will be there to disrupt, to unsettle, to make the world uncomfortable in its sin. Now, we may not always recognize this. His work is not always on our timetable, and that's because we are not sovereign. We are not sovereign over this work of conviction. Right, the initiative has always belonged to God. God has always been his own best prosecutor. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a role. The point, though, is that our role is always, it's always a supporting one. Oz Guinness puts it like this. He says, the call to be witnesses is central and decisive. We are not out to prove something new through the brilliance of our arguments. Our calling is to point to something old, or rather to bear witness to the established facts of the story of the gospel, though in the process clearing up anything and everything that might obscure or block a person's understanding. It's not about our brilliance. Here's what I want us to see. There's this connection between the two things that the Spirit has come to do. This ability to witness and point to the gospel depends on the Spirit coming to guide the disciples into the truth. Right? In other words, when it comes to our supporting role in the work of conviction, what are we relying on? We're relying upon the word that the Holy Spirit declared to those, upon, those disciples. That's the word that we speak. Right, and hatred, if hatred and persecution are to come our way, our response is declaring the news, the word about Christ. You see, the fundamental sin of the world, as verse 8 points out, the fundamental sin, the problem of this world, is disbelief in Christ, that everything can be traced back there. So what the world needs is something, something far deeper 
than, than a lecture on morals. Right? The world needs to be pressed with the news about Christ. And that word is what the disciples were armed with from the very beginning, from the start of the mission. I think Joel Beakey gives a nice summary. He says, when Christ sent the apostolic church into her mission into the world, the spirit went with them as the living breath of the son, communicating the truth and grace that the father gave us in Christ. The spirit went with them. Paul put it like this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see, in that moment, in that moment hearing about the world's coming hatred and Jesus' departure, the disciples felt utterly powerless because they were, as we are. We are without power apart from the helper. Because apart from the helper, we aren't going to convince anyone of the truth. So one last quote from Oz Guinness as he puts a bow on it. He says, Christian advocates who understand their calling should never be too big for their boots. The task is not about us. It's all about him. And he may be trusted to do what matters. So not only will empowerment come, but access will be given. So look at verse 16. Jesus gives this rather confusing statement. He says, a little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. And we don't have to feel bad because in verses 17 and 18, we see that it went right over the disciples' heads. And because Jesus was never surprised by the disciples' confusion, he goes on to explain himself beginning in verse 20. And in verse 20, here's his point. He says, the disciples in the world are going to respond to the same event in two different ways. Celebration for the world, but grief for the disciples. But you notice that there's this promise attached to the end of verse 20. The promise is that the disciples' sorrow is going to turn into joy. And then Jesus uses this illustration of childbirth to explain how that sorrow will turn into joy. Now, I'm not in a position to comment on whether it's completely accurate to say that a woman does not remember the anguish of childbirth. That doesn't make or break the illustration. What Jesus is saying here is that when new life comes into being, all the pain and grief that was required to bring that life into being is transformed. It undergoes an instant change. You see, all along, here's what the world doesn't understand. Jesus' death is the very thing that brings about new life for those who believe. Right, at the very beginning of John's gospel, way back in the prologue, we get a hint of this, because John wrote, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so here's what Jesus means in verse 16. 
The disciples are going to see Jesus in a new way, in a new way after his departure. Because the Spirit is going to bring about a new birth. Right? They will be born again by the Spirit. And that new birth is going to open their eyes and they're going to see things they've never seen before and things that the world cannot see. And what Jesus is drawing out here in those remaining verses is one of the great benefits, one of the great benefits the new life the Spirit brings, and that is access. Think about children. Do children pause and consider whether they should ask their parents questions? Right? When I was little, I was an endless barrage of questions. And even today, I think sometimes my parents are dodging my calls. But the point is, when I was little, I never thought, you know, I bet you my parents have had a long day. I bet you they would like a break. No, children don't think that, right? They interrupt. They don't knock. They don't wait their turn, right? But there's this boldness. There's this boldness to children that we are to imitate in prayer. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus invites us to approach the throne of grace with boldness, like children. He's saying, because of me, because of my work, you can come to the Father and you can ask. Right? There will be a day when sorrow is completely and finally removed from our lives. But until then, Jesus' instruction for us is to ask the Father for joy in his name. You see, prayer is the place where God's children come to express their sorrows. And they receive something that the world cannot give them. In other words, prayer is where the reality of our new identity, this new identity that the Spirit has given us, this identity as God's children, it's there in prayer where it is experienced. It's where it's lived out daily. Right? It's in prayer that we get that that foretaste of the joy that will never end. And because sorrows are abundant in this life, something that Jesus made clear in the passage from last week, we must never think that we can somehow exhaust or tire the Father with our prayers, that there's, there's no limit here. There's no time when the Father checks out, closes the door on us. He's good. He's good and he loves to give good things to those who ask him. And there's something deeper here too. Notice, notice how the hatred of the world actually turns out for our good and for God's glory. Why? Because it leads us deeper into prayer. Right? In the book of Acts, when the early church faced these threats and this hostility that Jesus was speaking about, what did they do? They prayed. Because of prayer, because of the access Christ has given us, the world, the world can't drive us away from the Father. All the world can do, all the world can do is draw us closer to him. And so my question, how are you dealing with your sorrows? Where do you take them? 
How do you respond in those difficult circumstances? Jesus is telling us, he's directing us to the Father. He's saying, bring your sorrows to the Father in my name and find a deeper joy than the world could ever know. And lastly, we learn that sorrow will be turned into joy because Jesus will share his victory. So notice in verse 25, Jesus makes this promise that a time will come when he will speak plainly to them. The problem is that in verse 29, the disciples wrongly conclude that that time is now. And so in other words, the disciples think that they've, they've got it all figured out. Right? There's nothing more to learn. Look again at verse 31. Jesus basically telling them, think again, my friends. So how do we know they didn't have it all figured out at this point? Because in Jesus' greatest hour of need, they ran. Right? And notice, not only did they leave Jesus alone, but each of them ran to his own home, meaning they abandoned each other. So apparently that whole lesson that they were supposed to take from that foot washing didn't quite sink in yet. But look at Jesus' response. He says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Here's what the disciples could only learn through the cross. Jesus never meant for them to support him. The cross revealed that he came into the world for their benefit alone. And he came because we've all, we've all scattered. We've all failed. We haven't kept our word. We've all crumbled under the weight of our own sins. And only one man had, to, had the strength to bear those sins on the cross. And only one man's blood could satisfy the judgment against us. Right? Only Christ and all of his love and all of his grace and all of his power and all of his majesty and all of his obedience could overcome all the ways that we failed, the ways that we failed to obey, the ways that we failed to love. And that victory of his that victory of his can only come into your life one way. You can't earn it. You're not going to be able to contribute to it. The only way you can bring it into your life is through faith. You know, John, one of those disciples who fled, who ran to save his own neck, would later write, who is it that conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the final question, what's your victory? What is it that's going to put you on top? Right? What, is, what is your road to success and glory? Friends, there's only one path. There's only one way to victory and glory and life. And that is through faith in Christ. And all their roads are going to lead to disappointment. They're going to lead to destruction. They lead to dead ends and death. But in Christ, 
We've been shown the way to glory. So believe in him. Trust his work. Trust his finished, perfect work. And receive a courage that cannot be shaken in this world. Amen.